0: This week on Dig Me Out.
1: There's a uh, demos. There's a wet synth mix. Just give you a feel—an acoustic version of another.
0: Well, you need a wet synth mix of every song, really, because <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. You need a dry synth mix and a wet synth mix. Synth mix.
1: Tim and Jay review Bake Sale by Sebado.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host Tim Minichi and joining me as always, my co-host Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 187. 187! And we're not Whoop. doing NWA. Uh, we're doing Sebado, which has no reference to 187. You know what 187 is, Jay, right? I don't, no. It's the police call for murder. Or homicide, oh, well,
1: yes, of course. How right. could I not know that?
0: So, if you listen to uh early 90s hip hop, the gangster rap, as it was called, uh, the numbers 187 would often be referenced, both in terms of uh, I know an opposing rapper that you might not like, you may want to 187 them. That's an, that's an oh, that's example, clever. yes. Anyway, that sort of derailed us for a moment, but let's get back on track. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking some Sebido. Uh This is a band from the 90s that, uh, like a lot of bands, uh, disappeared for most of the 2000s and then has come back as of late. They put out a new album in uh, 2013. And uh, we're going to talk about their 1994 album, 20 Years. We're doing that a lot this, uh, set, this season. We're talking about Bake Sale. Before we get into all that, all the history and stuff, let's talk about your familiarity with Sebado and my familiarity with Sebado Sebido Sebado. what's a, Was this a band that you listened to back in the nineties or, or did you skip them?
1: Uh, I skipped them. I found them in my periphery like so many other bands. Um, some of the stuff sounds familiar, but didn't uh, really get a chance to dig in deep until this this episode.
0: Gotcha. I, f- I discovered them on this record. It was for the single. We had the EP, I believe, for Rebound in the studio. A sad, sloppy Looking for a We had so I had the full length album, but I, I, I liked this album and I liked these songs, but I didn't like really get into this band until the next album, which was Harmacy, which I consider this almost like Bake Sale Part One, and that was is Bake Sale Part Two because they're they have, it's the same lineup um, for both mm-hmm. of these albums, and it's the only time that this lineup plays together, and. Um, I feel like those two albums really complement each other. But uh, the songwriting I, I liked a little bit more back then on Harmacy than on Bakesale. I don't know if that still holds up because we're not reviewing Harmacy, but we are re- reviewing Bakesale. And uh, now would be a good time for those who are not familiar with Sebado. Listen to a little segment we call History of the Band.
1: History of the Band.
0: So Hesepido formed in 1986 in Westfield, Massachusetts by Eric Gaffney and Lou Barlow. And at the time, Lou Barlow was playing bass in Dinosaur Jr. Um, So this was sort of like a four-track side project that Barlow had. And Barlow and Gaffney released a cassette in 1987 called Weed Forestin, and it was released on Homestead Records. The name Sebado, by the way, is just a nonsense word. It doesn't mean anything. It's just something that Barlow said on a recording one time and ended up naming the band after that. So uh, then the following year, in 1988, they released another cassette called The Freed Man, and that was also released on uh, Homestead. Shortly after that, Lou Barlow was kicked out of Dinosaur Jr. There was a, a... Dust up between him and Jay Massis, and uh, that same year, uh, Jason Lowenstein joined the band. So we had, basically, you had um, Gaffney on drums, Lou Barlow on drum and or guitar and bass, and then Lowenstein joins on guitar and bass, and there'd be some switching of instruments and whatnot. Played only ten shows between eighty nine and ninety, and their third album. Sebado three was released then. Um, they toured with Firehose in 1991, and then signed to Sub Pop in the United States, which ended up uh, their deals with in the UK were uh, Domino and City Slang, uh, specifically for Germany with City Slang. In 92, they released two EPs. Their first uh, album for Sub Pop was released: Smash Your Head on the Punk Rock. And then our fourth album was released in April of 93 called Bubble and Scrape. That's when Eric Gaffney left the band and uh, Bob Fay was hired on to play drums, which he played on Bake Sale and Harmacy, which is the two albums that I mentioned earlier. They're the only two albums that he plays on. So, 99, the album The Sebado, was released with Russ Pollard on drums after Faye was fired. Pollard was a friend of... Jason Lowenstein's the band went on hiatus and Lou Barlow focused on folk implosion, which had a, a relatively big hit single, like a top 40 single with a natural run natural one from the kids soundtrack. And then Jason Lowenstein released a solo album in 2002. They started playing reunion concerts have, after, after having been apart for a couple years um, in 2003 and 2004. And then in 2007, the classic lineup of Barlow, Gaffney, and Lowenstein went on tour together for the first time in 14 years. 2012, Gaffney left again, was replaced by Bob D'Amico. Uh, again, another friend of Lowenstein's to play drum. drums. In 2012, they released an EP called The Secret EP. And in 2013, they released a full-length album called Defend Yourself. It came out on Joyful Noise Recordings. And it debuted at number one on the New Alternative Artist Billboard chart, which is odd because they had been together at that point by you know for 27 years as a band. So not sure how that works out. But that's the history, the long history of uh, Sebado. So if you would like to suggest an album for us to review, visit the request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We did get some Facebook feedback on this record. Chris Cameron says, doesn't matter what I'm doing, when I hear the first lines of this record, I have to stop what I'm doing and instantly tune in, and, he's, and he quoted a line from the first, uh, first song, I'm not attractive today, I'm not a sight for sore eyes, from the song License to Confuse, and Kimberly, Kimberly McElroy says, my favorite Sebado album by far. So I mentioned that uh, this was the first album with Bob Faye on drums. It's actually three people played drums on this record. Eric Gaffney, before he left, he'd already recorded drum tracks for four songs. Tara Jane O'Neill played drums on three of the songs. And then Bob Fay played on the remainder of the album, which would have been, this is a 15 song record. So the other nine song or eight songs uh, was Bob Faye. And we're reviewing the original 15 song release. We are not reviewing the what is it, Jay? Like 44 song re-release? Um, yeah,
1: <clears throat> yeah. Let me take a quick look here. It's uh, 40 songs. 40 songs. Yeah, yeah 40 songs. That's a, a bit demos. much.
0: Yeah. So there's
1: a um, demos. There's a wet synth mix of one song. Just give you a feel—an acoustic version of another.
0: Well, you need a wet synth mix of every song, really, because (laughs) sure, what that means. You need a dry synth mix and a wet synth synth mix.
1: Um, Looks like a good handful of uh, songs just didn't make the record. Quite a bit there to go through.
0: No, this was not a band that was, uh, in terms of songwriting, um, or maybe I didn't. I don't. Maybe I did. Uh, The songwriting on this album is split up. Uh, Lou Barlow wrote nine songs and sings nine songs. Uh, Jason Lowenstein sings and writes five songs, and then uh, actually new drummer Bob Fay he contributed one track to this album. So one of the things we're going to talk about afterwards is the the two songwriter band. Um, mm. I think we should get into that. Uh, we we'll talk I about thought it was the two, si- two two singers. singer two singer and two, yeah okay. two singers. Usually when you have two singers, you have two songwriters.
1: True, is what, true. That was
0: what I found. But we'll talk about the two, the two singer band, the two different voices, and talk about whether or not that's successful and talk about if that helps or hurts the lifespan of a, of a rock band, especially in the 90s. Mm. So let's talk about this record first. Let's talk about Bake Sale. Let's talk about what we liked and what we didn't like. Jay, I've already told you that I'm pretty familiar with this record. So as a newbie coming to this record, uh, tell me something that you liked about it.
1: Uh, I think a good handful of the songs have really good um, and strong vocal melodies, surprisingly. And despite a lot of really, you know, fuzzed out and and a little bit angular at times uh, guitars and instrumentation, in a a good handful of the songs, um, there's a nice balance between that and just a really good, um, just melodic, clear voice, which I I found worked really well. I think there's a mixing sort of sweet spot to making that work. And in some songs, they hit it and they get that voice uh, from a production standpoint, you know, might and uh, presented in the mix so that you can you can really appreciate that. And there's other ones where either on purpose or not, that voice falls a little bit further down into the mix and the noise comes up a bit and you're confronted with some of the tones of the, the band, and which aren't terrible, but... Um, they kind of can distract from the those strong melodies. So there's definitely a um, there's a good songwriting craft and a good sense of melody uh, throughout a lot of this record.
0: Okay, interesting. <laughs> well, you said surprisingly, which at the beginning of your statement. So I I've, that made me perk up. Were you when you said surprisingly? Were you expecting there to be not strong melodies?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like um, my sense of the band was that they could get noisy and experimental. That was sort of my perception of them. Mm-hmm. And very lo-fi. So, you know, that was my my bias going in. So right. I think I was a little bit surprised that um, for a lot of this record that those elements can are, are suppressed in a, in a way to allow um, the, the melodic sensibilities of not just Barlow, because I think the the Lowenstein songs have the same melodic attributes. Um, but I was surprised that they were able to suppress some of the some of the fuzz and noise and, and angst and attitude to allow the melody to come forward. I didn't necessarily expect that. I think I was expecting a little bit more of a difficult listen than it is.
0: Well, I think you're probably referencing their earlier records because those are definitely different. <laughs> I kind of liken this to like. In the same way that Guided by Voices wrote a lot of songs and would pump out a lot of recordings, you know, Lou Barlow was doing this. He was doing Centrado, which was a lo-fi recording project connected to Sevado, and then he was doing Folk Implosion. Um, He's also done solo albums. He's he's had a lot of different outputs for music over the years. Um, I feel like this is the record in the same way that when you get to the Guided by Voices record, um, Mag Earwig, that they did with Cobra Verde, that the production st- level takes a step up and the, the songs are a lot clearer. The melodies are a lot mm-hmm. sharper. Um, the the focus of the songs are more consistent um, throughout the album. And uh, the, in terms of what I liked about this record, I think what they did well before, which was write very simple simplistic even songs that were maybe you know a minute or two is that they took that simplicity but they really stepped up the songwriting so like you have like a song like uh, License to Confuse which is really built around this very simplistic melody whether it's the guitar playing the melody or the vocal using the same melody That's what they use during the verses of the song, and it's really catchy, and it, you know, hooks you right away. I mean, this is not a band that spends a lot of time on long intros or um, solos or anything like that. I mean, these are very concise. You're lucky if you get a bridge in any of these songs. This song happens to have one, but they compact it into, you know, a track that's only a minute 46. This song and... Um, quite a few of the other ones. I, I like the fact that they they create these very simple, like four or five song, four or five note guitar lines that either complement the vocal or act as a counter melody to the vocal. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it could get repetitive, but they're able to find a way to use it, bring it in, take it out at very key points in songs, and keep it fresh. And that I really appreciated. You know, going back in terms of how tight the songs are and how tight the songwriting is. There's just not a lot of fat on these tunes. And what, the few times that there are, which we'll get to later, it, it, it's towards the back half of the record. I feel like on the fir- first half of the record, it's just it's just one after another really tight little pop songs. Some of them are a little twisted pop songs. Some of them have some non-traditional structures where they don't have a mm-hmm. an obvious chorus, and it's more with the Jason Lowenstein songs. That that's mm-hmm. happening, but yeah, I really like uh, I really like how they keep it simple. You know, they take the kiss, not the kiss the band, but the keep it simple, stupid method, and yeah. um, and that's that's what I uh, really appreciate about this record. For going back and listening to it,
1: yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, to the point where there's probably three or four songs in here where I wouldn't mind if they invested just a little bit more in them. I'm thinking of like skull which I think is a really strong song, really well-constructed, great melody. does have a, a chorus but it's really restrained
0: mm-hmm.
1: almost to the point of being a little bit of a letdown as to the build that that happens so the first time they go to it it's kind of the restraint is it's kind of nice because i'm thinking they touch on it quickly and they're going to come back to it and really build on it the second time the third time and really you know pay it off but they don't they just do it the same way a couple others I'm trying to think here magnets coil um, another example of, of two when they get to the choruses they do a handful of these songs um they know to use tambourine i don't know if you noticed that but they'll introduce mm-hmm. tambourine in the chorus to really distinguish them which is always a you know it's a, almost a stereotypical um approach but it works we've talked about it in the past it just needs a little extra in most of these cases just a little extra something i don't know if it's another vocal that would help it you know a, a harmony of sorts or yeah. Maybe a guitar lead or just some little extra element. Um, it doesn't have to get crazy production wise. I'm completely fine with the production on this record. It, it's just, um, I think they're strong enough in the verses and the idea of the chorus is strong enough that it just makes me feel a little bit. There's just an element missing to really make these choruses come through and shine and be very, you know, go from being nice and solid to being really spectacular
0: yeah i think that that you mentioned about harmonies that would be a killer addition to this band in in selected choruses especially the poppier stuff that barlow sings in the follow-up album harmacy his pop songwriting really shines through on that record you get like on fire and um ocean and willing to wait and he's really like well constructed pop songs that are still retain that indie alternative edge of the nineties, but he's it's like this this just has still a little bit more edge to it than that record does. But if they had added the the you know, like you said, like out of harmony here, just for a just for a part of the chorus or the whole chorus, whatever, it would have just I mean, these songs would be over the top in terms of their pop sensibility. And it's not to say that they're, you know, lacking because of that, but just you're right. When they add that tambourine, it's a you know that's a total nod to the fact that we're gonna write a poppy song. Yeah, you don't throw a tambourine on just for the hell of it. You know, you're going for something there.
1: And they do do some dual vocal stuff. Like uh, "Careful" has a little bit of something going on there with two voices. Um, there's another tune where there's a falsetto um, main vocal and then another.
0: Well, the falsetto um, I think is a "Temptation Ride." And that's actually Bob Fay, the drummer, singing on that song. Okay, yeah, I think it's just he has a different voice.
1: So those are, they're not more or less successful, but I'm just bringing up that they do, you know, explore the idea of, of um, layering vocals and, and attempting to do some harmony like things. Uh, it's just it's not for me, not placed in the right, the right songs in the right spots. Uh, right I think is my complaint
0: there. Well, I, one other thing I wanted to mention that I like, which we are going to talk about, is the two songwriter, two singer approach. Because Lou Barlow has a has a delivery that is fine. Um, it's a little sometimes on the slower songs. It's a little maudlin. He's a little yeah. sad. He's a sad guy. Yeah. And uh, I think that <laughs> I think that Jason Lowenstein brings some of that edge to this band um, that I really like. And you mentioned uh, "Careful" um, is one of the tracks of his that I like. "Not Too Amused" is another one. So is that it's, him
1: singing on Careful? Yes. Oh, okay. It's not that discernible to me which one of them is
0: singing. Well, I think it is because Lowenstein is willing to scream and yell. And oh, he's okay. he's he's willing to get up there. Lou Barlow doesn't ever as far as I can recall on, you know, these two records that I'm referencing, Big Sale and it's always yeah. Jason Lowenstein that's the one that's going up there with his voice and, and screaming or what have you. Now that works in some cases and that doesn't work in other cases. Um, yeah, it works for me on like not too amused where he gets intense
1: A little too, um, I don't know, stereotypical grungy. You know what I mean? Like it just seemed that was one of the songs that I had marked as like, like borderline boring alt alt rock. You know what I mean? In the '90s, indie alt rock stuff. But I mean, it's not a bad song. It's just it wasn't remarkable to me.
0: Well, what did you think of "Got It"? Because that's him as well. But he's singing in. It's an up tempo song, and he's singing a bit higher on that track. I hated it.
1: I did that was my least favorite song on the really
0: album. like okay I think the
1: course the course is really
0: weak I don't know I guess because I like the guitar tone and the bass tone in that song that's yeah
1: what... you know what I, and, I, and I yeah I I can see that point there the, I, I really do like the productionist record I was surprised that I like it as much as I do and I'm listening to the remastered version so it may be benefiting quite a bit there but there are some songs even like that one to your point that like I shouldn't say it's awful but I will. I would listen to them just because I find the production so interesting. It's different. They use a lot of cool guitar tones, and they abuse bass in a really interesting way. Like there's songs where it's. I think the bass is like panned to the left
0: mm-hmm.
1: on a couple of tunes. I'm trying to find where that one is that really stuck out that it was panned that way. But they'll do things like guitars will get really really small. Um, and or, or there's a couple spots where they're like in electrics that aren't amped, you know, to add texture. Um, and then they'll kind of come in, not necessarily in choruses, but in verses and bring in like two guitars on top of each other. Um, like paying hard right and le- left to make a, a bigger kind of impression. I, I actually like the, the production of this record quite a bit. The drums are <clears throat> at times a little distant. Um, but they bring them for- forward when they're a bigger part of the song, um, and when they're not, they kind of fall back. I think really my only complaint on production-wise is just that in a lot of these cases, I want to hear the vocal more up front, and um, sometimes it is, and sometimes it starts to get lost a little bit. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, uh, to your point, I think in a lot of in most of the cases, I'll I found myself you know wanting to listen to the song again just because of the production, even if it wasn't. Um, from a songwriting standpoint, my favorite.
0: And I think that's an interesting observation because, you know, on a lot of records, the volume of the bass and the drums and the guitar, will you know, they'll just get set and that's it. And there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of variance. Whereas on this record, a lot of stuff shifts around, you know, and that might be due Mm -hmm. to the fact that this maybe wasn't all recorded at the same time. I don't know if that's the case. I'm not sure of the recording history of this particular record, if it was all done in studio or, you know, they were a band that did four tracks. I don't know if some of this started out as four track recordings or whatnot, but um, there's a diversity, not only in the songwriting, but in the actual production of each song that makes it an interesting listen. Where the, I think when we get into what we didn't like or what didn't work for us, um, when you get to track 9, S Soup, which is short for Shit Soup, that's the where the Lowenstein, the bad Lowenstein comes in. Um, I didn't particularly like that song. It's in this like six eight waltz, and it shows the weakness of a song that doesn't have a chorus or a strong chorus in in, in terms of of strong vocal melody, um, which Lowenstein a lot of Lowenstein songs don't have a traditional chorus they have a verse and then like a guitar repeated guitar line or some sort of where he goes to a big chorus at the end of the song sort of in that like journeys don't don't stop believing sort of format um without actually being a journey song Uh, but they do that a couple times actually both him and Lou Barlow do that where they they kind of do a verse and they do a guitar line and they do a verse and they do a guitar line and then they go to a like uh, an outro vocal that is kind of the hook of the song where it gets big um but it's not necessarily a traditional verse chorus verse chorus track but that song and then track 10 give up which is sort of like a metal cowpunk song is the only way i can describe it part of the record there luckily uh, ironically enough rebounds with the song rebound um mm-hmm. but nine and ten are like those could have been left off the record as far as i'm concerned
1: i agree um yeah i noted on s soup that there is a chorus in there that's actually good they just don't to your point they don't know how to structure it or they choose not to structure it traditionally um and it's a and they don't even like do that where it's strong at the end of the song it sort of just appears halfway through the song it's the part it's um it's not my job to undo it's like it's not my job to undo And he's kind of screaming it yeah um that is the hook of the song and they go to it like once briefly and then they go out you know it it just left me wishing (laughs) they could restructure that because it's in there it's not a the parts aren't bad. It's just the way they chose, or the way it ended up being structured, is just not successful to me. Um, yeah. Give up is almost funny, you know. Is that that's the one with the really dark riff, right?
0: It's like the metal intro, and then it goes yeah, to that yeah, like yeah. wanna be super it suckers almost, part.
1: Yeah, it's like a metal intro, and like the verses are like so small they almost sound like ukuleles. It's just ridiculous. Like in terms of there's this heavy, thick, dirgy kind of Sabbath riff yeah or spice with this almost like what sounds like cartoon music um i guess it's humorous i I don't know what else to make of it and then you know rebound does bring the record back but then we kind of go into this slow mid-tempo section towards the end too like yeah mystery man and temptation tide and i don't like the falsetto stuff um I don't like, uh, not at all. I think Mystery Man is probably one of the more successful slower songs, but it's just uh, the, for some reason, the melodies don't have that sharpness that like, uh, they don't grab you the same as in the up tempo songs. Like, I think he, he needs tempo in order to establish that really memorable, cookie melody. I think the album recovers on Together Alone. I think there's a great guitar melody on in the intro and then in the outro um, mm-hmm. that holds so kind of sets a theme for the rest of the song i was kind of surprised and this song does it too is how restrained parts of the record are um, obviously they let loose you know in, in portions and, and do that quite often but there is a lot of restraint which is interesting to me i didn't expect that like they don't even in some of the courses like i mentioned like they don't go all all in with volume and distortion and fuzz and that kind of stuff, you know, they kind of keep it pulled back. The drummer plays a little bit, doesn't play like as hard all the time. I was kind of surprised by that. For some reason, I didn't expect that much attention to restraint and dynamics uh, as the record has.
0: Well, I think there's a quite a bit of uh, traditional songwriting techniques going on in terms of like a lot of these songs are so simple. They remind me of like almost like 50s. You know original yeah. early rock and roll yeah and, yeah there's uh, one that really reminded me of that well what i was gonna say is that you know when you get to songs like you know the, these these little riffs they're just built around like these little three or four note guitar lines you know they remind you of like those early even like you know early british invasion type stuff and and those types of songs and i know that the tones are heavier and dirtier and more distorted and you're, you're getting that indie rock of the nineties and some of that eighties stuff. But I bet if you were to dive into Lou Barlow's, you know, record collection at this time, I bet you'd find some like, you know, Beatles and kinks and, and that kind of stuff. A lot of British invasion stuff that would probably be, you know, a direct descendant in line into uh, this those sort of like pop uh, two minute long rock songs that they're doing here.
1: There was one that maybe is was Rebound. There was one where the chorus really reminded me of, I almost made the note, but it fell short. I thought it would sound ridiculous to make the note that it had a 50s kind of rock and roll sensibility to it, but now that you mention it, I don't feel so in not a, It's not obvious, but it's just, I think when you start dissecting it, you do to your point, see a Influence there of maybe the Kinks is probably a good one that uh, wasn't completely at the forefront as I went into this record, sort of revealed itself.
0: And I think what also helped is in terms of uh, the songs and the songwriting is that there was a lot, I think there was a lot of resentment by Lou Barlow for getting kicked out of Dinosaur Jr. And a lot of the songs in the early Sebado years are focused on anger at jay Masses. I feel like he sort of weaned himself off of that anger and started just writing songs about other ideas other than being pissed off. And you know, I am not going to put Lou Barlow up there with the greatest songwriters of all time, but Bob Pollard because of the mass amount of music that he's he's released, he sort of forgot like, you know, if you're if you're to take like the 10 or 12 best songs that Lou or that uh, Bob Pollard's ever done, they'd probably be up there with some of the best songwriters in, in rock history. I mean, he has a great ear for melody and a great ear. He doesn't have necessarily have the best production going on with all those songs, but 10 or 12 best songs are really good. And I, I kind of feel the same way about Lou Barlow. Lou Barlow's put out a lot of music and yeah. some of it's, you know, kind of gotten, you know, from you and me both, uh, a little bit of a, a, a suspicious eye because of the production behind a lot of it. And, just the mass volume of stuff that would come out between EPs and albums of different bands and all this sort of stuff. But I bet if you take like the 10 or 12 best Lou Barlow songs and put them up against other songwriters from the nineties, I would bet he'd have probably some of the best songs of the nineties, just in terms of being able to write great rock songs, great pop rock songs with really good melodies. Just between this album and the next album, there's, four or five just i would take you know license to confuse and rebound pair those up with ocean and you know maybe willing to wait around fire or something like that there's just he's yeah, just it's, got an ear for a really good simple melody
1: yeah and it, it uh, i think touches on my point about i wish and the same thing with pollard i wish at times there was more investment in some of these ideas and you know that may not be the kind of artist they are and they might be obviously they are let me take a step back. They are the types of artists that just need to get these ideas out, move on, and potentially, you know, oh, uh, spending more time crafting them is counterproductive to their their process. So it is what it is. I mean, just uh, for me, I, I hear a um, missed opportunity. For other people, maybe they don't hear that, and it doesn't bother them as much. I don't know enough about the full catalog here for Lou Barlow and Sebodeau to know if there are moments where, like... Uh, kind of by Voices where there definitely are a couple records where, you know, there's higher production and just more, a little bit more time spent crafting, you know, particular songs um, instead of just kind of getting down the sketches and moving on. Um, I don't know if that's happened with this band or if this is the record where they intended to do that. But yeah, it's interesting. Very, very similar in terms of uh, potentially how they go about um, creating music.
0: Let's jump into our ratings for this record were the album better ep decent single J?
1: it's gonna be a tough one because it's not a long record because the songs are pretty short even though it's what 15 songs 14 mm-hmm. songs um i have three four five six seven songs
0: <laughs> really
1: so F- yeah you. yeah i don't i think the, a couple of the others i wouldn't be um i think you can make a record out of it at 10 songs i think if you include three others they're not bad they're just you know as i'm really honing in on the ones that i reacted to and thought were the strongest i'm at seven um so i'll say a worthy album i think the rest of the record is short enough that if there's a song or two that maybe is boring or you don't quite get it's it's gonna be over fast you know there's not any like seven minute epics here of noise or nonsense so i'll I'll give it a worthy record
0: see for me there's only three songs that i really don't like which is uh Track 9, 10, and 13, which is, I believe, the same songs as you. Uh, Mystery Man is is an okay song for me. But mm-hmm. after that, I, you know, I got like 11 songs that are straight up. I, I, they're not going anywhere. They're staying on this record. Yeah. So 11 mm-hmm. to 12 songs is going to be my album. So this is definitely a worthy record uh, for me. I want to get into whether or not then, uh, as a two-singer band... Is it successful as this two-singer band? And let me put it to you this way: Did there need to be two singers? <laughs> Did it make a difference to you? Did it cause uh, any sort of no. second thoughts?
1: No. I mean, I, I honestly, in majority of the cases, I didn't discern that much between the two voices, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. The cases like you mentioned, where there's somebody's, you know, closer approaching a scream. In the cases of there being a falsetto, I didn't necessarily love those parts, um, especially the falsetto I I thought was really weak. Mm -hmm. So I think from a songwriting standpoint, I think the album benefits from having some different points of view here. I think all Lou Barlow songs may have gotten, like you said, a little too sad. (laughs) Uh, There's maybe through collaboration or just another person just taking the song, you know, presenting their own song. Provided enough r- uh, variety on the record to make it, I think, more interesting than if you had one. But vocally, I, I, like I said, I, it, it sounds pretty, pretty damn close to me that it's not adding a ton of value.
0: And I wonder how many times there are two singers and you don't realize it. Because when I googled, you know, two singer bands, a couple came up that I went, I didn't really think about them as being a two singer band. One of them was The Clash. Mm-hmm. Oh, which yeah. Is yep. Mick Jones and Joe Strummer. And Mick Jones actually sang some of the biggest hits for that band, like Train in yep. Vain and Should I Stay or Should I Go? Which I didn't really realize that. I just figured yeah, it's not always. Drummer.
1: I guess if I had to think about it, I could tell you which one was singing. But in most cases, it's just the clash to me. Like I don't right. stop and say, oh, this is a strummer song.
0: Here's another one Do you think of The Who as a two singer band?
1: Well, hmm, that's interesting because I'll throw a 90s band out that it's probably in the same case, Oasis.
0: Right. I was going to lead right into that where you have basically the, the guitar-playing songwriter of the band and then you have right. the, the front man who sings who doesn't really write as much or at all.
1: Yep. I think in both those cases, my initial reaction is to say they're a one-singer band it just because you the lead singer is just what pops in the mind you know, as a visual, but I and think you'd have to say that technically they're two, both two singer bands.
0: Well, what, what do you have to, what do you have to sing to become a two singer band? Like, mm. here's my question. So the Goo Goo Dolls are a two singer band. Not yes. once ever has a Robbie Goo song been released as a single. They're always yeah. the Johnny Goo songs. and It's Johnny Resnick and Robbie Takic. But I'm just referring to him as Johnny Goo and Robbie Goo. That's what they
1: call him back in Buffalo.
0: Yeah, we call him the Goo Bros. Uh, so, and uh, I don't think, I, I would bet that a lot of people don't know if they just listen to the radio, don't even know that the Goo Goo Dolls have two lead singers. But those those are like, you know, if there's 10 songs on a record, four of them are going to Robbie. So it's almost 50%.
1: Is it still that way? Does Robbie still get that many songs?
0: I haven't listened to an album of theirs in quite some time.
1: <laughs> I haven't either. I know their early stuff pretty well. But
0: right. Oh, I, I know everything up to, say... Boy Named uh, Goo? Well, I know, the, and then the uh, the follow-up after that, which I don't remember I the don't name of the album. Those. But it yeah. had Black Balloon on it and Slide. And, uh, you know, it had a couple of songs on it. I uh, that, that song that were <laughs> there were singles i actually discovered them on superstar car washed and if you want to get technical too. because of the we are me the normal too. song mm-hmm. uh, that they had co-written with paul westerberg that was a big hit in buffalo yep. it was not a big national yep. hit um uh, so it was
1: on the radio in cleveland too
0: okay and then i went back and got like hold me up and me i'm too. a big fan of that album i like february stars or is it called february mm-hmm. stars um and uh they do the song with lance diamond never take the place of your man mm-hmm. um there's there's quite a few the mm-hmm. early early stuff i don't care care for but there's a band like that's a very successful two singer band but i would bet if you poll people they don't know that they have two singers
1: right right because he gets the album tracks yeah i mean uh, the ones where it gets vague is interesting like um alice, and alice and is that a two singer I band say that, yeah yeah <laughs> I think most people think of it as a one singer, but in a lot of cases, you know, what's his name? The guitar player wrote most of the writes a lot of those melodies in his singing harmonies.
0: Right. Or so He, sometimes wrote, even he sing sings lead. Heaven Beside You, which is a yeah, big hit. Yeah. Um But um, I think you think of that as being Lane Staley's band in terms of the right. singer. That's a tough one. Well, there's some
1: there's some like uh obviously like Uncle Tupelo. Mm-hmm which is maybe like, I don't know, would you compare that to what Dinosaur Jr. went through where you had opposing, almost complimenting, but opposing points of view on songwriting and wanting to do certain takes on what they did and then eventually split it up?
0: I don't because Lou Barlow would only contribute like one or two songs an album. Whereas Jeff Tweedy, by the time the third album came out, Or even the second album. I mean, he wrote probably five or six songs on the second album, and then by the last album, he had written he had written, like, "Split" on that one. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I think Uncle Tupelo is probably closer to like a Husker Du with like Grant Hart and Bob Mould, in terms of having diverse voices, but of even and having like even clashing personalities, but having you know, a split down the middle of songwriting. Yeah. That's a tough one because that's an example of were they really successful in the same way that they were successful solo? I mean, I th- obviously, Wilco is far more successful than Uncle Tupelo ever was in terms of mainstream popularity. I don't think you can say that about Jay Farrar with Sunvolt. I mean, they've had their moments. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: You know what? I, I, and I, I know I'm in the minority on this. That's a band where... And I think the Jayhawks are the same story where they needed to separate to explore their own ideas. But mm-hmm. I really wish, which is the Jayhawks have done now, is that they would come back together to kind of balance each other out. Now, obviously, that'll never happen because I don't think Jeff Tweedy thinks he needs anybody <laughs> to balance anything out. But I think it would be really interesting to see those two come back together and then have to you know balance each other out a little bit and sort of pull back some of the i guess far left and right directions that they've gone and and cons- consolidate that into you know one idea i think that would be kind of
0: cool let me throw some names out at you this was this is a unique two singer setup that was really only started in the 90s and that's when you would have one guy singing and the other guy Let's say rapping, three eleven.
1: Oh no!
0: Bare naked oh, yeah, ladies.
1: That's right. Oh, oh, oh my god! <laughs> Why did you have to remind me that this started then?
0: Yeah, oh. that's when you had the one like Nick Hexum would be uh, singing oh. his his reggae ish vocal part, and then S. A. Martinez would come in with his hip hop, his oh. Oklahoma hip hop, or wherever they were from. Oklahoma. That's so or, yeah. Um no, what I really wanted to talk about was uh I and I this is again this is another band that I, I went, oh that's right, they were two singers. Pink Floyd, David Gilmore, oh, Roger yeah. Waters. Probably yeah. you'd have to say, in terms of just having two singers, now there are a lot of bands that had three or four singers, like Kiss, The Beatles, Fleetwood Mac. We're not talking mm-hmm. about that. We're just talking about two singers. Pink Floyd's probably the most successful of the two, the two singers setup, wouldn't you say?
1: mm mm-hmm trying to think here I didn't think all time when I did my list I mean they're an incredibly successful band so I think that's probably a safe statement to make I mean they're probably what top five all time ever right. period in terms of success you're talking about them the Beatles Zeppelin The Who. I don't know the who ACDC or something like that like in terms of right, we talk about commercial success over a career so, the Eagles yeah, I mean, gotta be up
0: there and the eagles had multiple yeah, singers but not they're a two, 40 three. singer band yeah
1: actually the eagles might be like number 1 or 2 but yeah it's funny oh, when you start listening to them off there's there's maybe like in the top 5 there's more multi singer bands than there are single singer bands right i mean you just said the beatles the eagles pink floyd mhm and then single singers is it really like zeppelin the who no the who you, we just said you can make the who a two singer band so right Oh, interesting. I never thought about that. It's not the classic uh, sort of stereotype that you have about, I guess, you know, big bands. You always think of the the powerhouse lead singer, the quiet guitar player looking to, you know, steal the spotlight, not more collaborative.
0: Well, let me ask you, because sliding into that sort of description is the Rolling Stones. Keith sang some songs.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harris so i too. joe perry sang some songs
0: but they're not two singer bands right i don't consider rolling stones to be a two singer band. i consider um, there as much he as, got he got a song every once in a while basically there's as
1: much as the goo goo dolls probably i mean if they were less successful i think you'd see jesus why well, can't remember his name
0: <laughs> keith
1: richards keith richards sorry uh singing more i think if they were you know in their early first 10 years had they not broke so fast i think you probably would have saw some other them trying some other stuff but some of those bands you get you know if they get huge fast they're not going to mess around with that kind of thing you know right um unless there's some like major argument in the band or somebody who just does not feel like they're getting their say and they can't do it on a solo record then you might see it come up but i mean technically i think they're a two singer band it's just not uh commercially what people think of
0: and the only other one that, or there was two that I thought of, one was Fugazi, Ian McKay and Guy Picciotto or however you say his last name. Um, and that's, a, that's one where it wasn't necessarily based around songwriting, I don't believe. Because I, I, they would often sing on the same songs and trade vocal parts on a lot of stuff. So it was really about just having two voices for two different, it was just the singing styles were different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one was Sonic Youth, where you'd have mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon and that's probably the only significant one in terms of having a, a male female I mean obviously there's so, there are bands that have female members that might or male members that might do some vocals here or there but they didn't, weren't necessarily like the lead singers both the lead singers that took their own songs yeah
1: you know I was surprised on that and I just we haven't done exhaustive research on this, so please leave comments if you can think of some. But yeah, I expected as I sort of go- went through lists and things to see more bands where there was maybe a female lead and then a a male a more prominent or vice versa, like um, you know, a male lead but a female that wasn't just a backup that actually came in and sang, sang lead. I couldn't really think of any other than Sonic Youth. Like uh, the Pumpkins never really did that, right? And
0: no, Darcy never I, sang I don't know. It
1: seemed like there was a lot of 90s bands that had female members, but there wasn't a lot of like exchange between the two um, in terms of vocal responsibilities, which is no, You know where you got I
0: that? You got that in hip hop. Yeah. Where there'd be like the song where the male and female would sing, you know, rap back and forth.
1: And I know that's a theme that through some of the records we've reviewed, which are obviously obscure. That's why we're we, we are reviewing them, but that's been an element that when we do hear it, I feel like we both respond to it really well. You know, we've we've come across it in our in our show here, but um, in terms of commercial success, I'm not drawing a blank.
0: It almost re- it really makes me wish that Evan Dando and Juliana Hatfield had just done a full album together singing, because she sings right. on a little bit of one of the Lemonheads albums, but it's not the whole record but I, w- mm-hmm. I really wish they had sung together and done a whole record of just them trading songs back and forth or just doing harmonies on every song, and that would have been interesting. Really, the only thing we have to... I guess the only thing I can think of is the Susanna Hoffs and Matthew Sweet covers albums that have come out in the, in the last decade. Where yeah. Sometimes they'll take a lead or sometimes they'll do harmonies and it kind of changes from song to song, but that's about it. That's all I can think of. So, yeah, definitely if people have thoughts on that. Chime in, please. I'm sure we missed some. I had
1: a couple that were... Um I'm not sure about, I think they might be two singers, but they're so similar and blended you can't quite tell. Like Meat Puppets, I think they both sing. President, presidents of the United States, didn't they have two two guys singing? And then I Sloan. Even though Sloan I like is Sloan four. A lot, and I'm really familiar with their material. I don't know the breakdown of the band that well. Like I don't know who writes and who sings what. I just kind of listen to it. <laughs>
0: I understood that everybody in Sloan plays every instrument and sings.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was the sense I got. I've just never looked at it from a breakdown standpoint.
0: Right. Well, yeah, we definitely want people to chime in. Uh, Mention some bands that you uh, think we missed regarding uh, two singers, whether it's two males, two females, what have you. I just thought of one right now, Veruca Salt.
1: Oh, there you go.
0: There are two female lead, song, lead singers, yeah. So and they just got back together recently, following in the trend of uh, many '90s bands.
1: On the longe- longevity question, I I think it boils down to like when you we brought up this topic, my mind immediately went to Uncle Tupelo, and I thought, well, okay, if that's the example, obviously it must be hard to maintain that. Like you've got two songwriters who want to do their own thing, and at some point, that just some point sooner rather than later, that breaks. Breaks up and they go different right. directions, but I think we just proved with a lot of the artists we went through, it maybe wasn't as big of an issue as as I thought it was. Because um, I think most of these bands either had l- you know pretty lengthy careers or are still going. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's not that big of a deal.
0: It's either going to cause conflict or they're going to complement each other. Yeah. So, chime in, Facebook page, website, digmeoutpackpodcast.com. Feel free to leave us some comments on this. And of course, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. That's it. Uh, speaking of Sloan, that's our next review. We're going to be talking about Sloan's album, Twice Removed, on the next episode. So be sure to um, you know dial us in wherever you're listening, whether it's Radio IO or Stitcher, iTunes. Podbean, what have you get your comments in so we can put it on the uh or we can put it in the next episode so for jay i'm tim and we're out be sure to tune in next week for another episode of dig me out join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.